The Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded Australia's most trusted energy provider by CanStar three times. Maybe it's time you switch to Red. And for Prince Wine Store, Bank Street, South Melbourne and delivering Australia-wide, princewinestore.com.au. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkins. Welcome, everybody, to episode 268 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Caroline Wilson. I'm here with my good friend and fellow podcaster, Corrie Perkin. And there is a lot to talk about, Corrie. You've got another fabulous new book. You've been cooking and we've been watching telly. So I'm looking forward to hearing and discussing all of that with you. It's a big week, as they say in the podcast, Caro. It seems like we've gone from big news story week to big news story week. But it's lovely to see you and... Uh, not such a cold day in Melbourne today. I noticed Miss Jane and Caro with all of the potties who were chiming in from international places at our request, where do you live? Uh, so many of them are former Melburnians and they love hearing the stories, don't they, of our weather and our city and our town and our grumpies about the traffic and all that sort of stuff. Well, I loved hearing from Madeline Leonard, who um, we were talking recently about people getting in touch and telling us where they were listening from. This is a reverse of what we keep hearing is going on in this um, country and city of ours. You recently asked for a note asking, stating where we are all from. I can proudly say I'm living in Parkville and it's thanks to you all in part. Two years ago during lockdown, I dashed down here from warm New South Wales to assist an adult daughter. Well, thanks to you and two other podcasts hosted by a duo of interesting Melbourne women, I made the decision to stay here for several more years. This is extraordinary, leaving my husband temporarily parked on the mid-north coast of New South Wales. Now, um, there's uh, uh, so many (laughs) questions come out of this. Madeline, Madeline. come on the podcast. uh, Who is the other podcast? Is your husband happy about this? Who's the other podcast of middle-aged women? He didn't say they were middle-aged. Oh, I assume they were Is he wondering when you're coming home? Anyway, she's disappointed. Has she she seen her husband since then? Madeline. She must have. Get on the line. She's disappointed she couldn't uh, visit the Writers' Festival in Sorrento, but she went there for a day trip recently on a bright, sunny day. She found it a lovely spot and she'll be at the festival next year. Now, Carol, Starts just, on Anzac Day, Madeline, I just so gonna, you know. I was going to say, can we just put in a, in a plug there? Because it was interesting with our market research to note how many people, in fact, came to the festival as a result of our podcast. So we are women of influence. And... Um, it is the 25th of April to the 28th of April that next year. That would be Anzac Day, Corrie, as Correct. I said. Correct. Yes, yes. Thank you. I'm just saying it's four days. Thank you, Caro. Um, and it Caro, um, Luke Hand, I guess this is not a real name, I don't know, love the show. I've heard mention of the ABC's ratings of the coronation being discussed and infer- an inference being made that people tuned out during the ABC broadcast because of Stan Grant's commentary. I started watching the coverage, said Luke, but switched to a different channel because the commentators on the ABC didn't seem to have any idea what they were talking about. They were interrupting each other, correcting each other, blathering on about irrelevant stuff when something was actually happening in real time on screen. Just wanted to put it out there that people may have tuned out not because of Stan offering his two cents in the coverage, but because it was just confusing and distracting to watch. That's interesting. And also, Luke adds, just quickly, I agree, Camilla's dress was a bit boxy. The surface did seem a little flat. Just to get down to the real issues. So, Corrie, we're talking in a week when 
the ABC has submitted itself to a cultural review in the wake of Stan Grant's walking away and his issues with the fact that not only was he absolutely attacked after that coronation coverage, which he was asked to do, but that no one really stood up for him. And it, it sort of, I'm surprised, as I said at the time, that he didn't focus more on News Corp, I've got to say, because largely that's where the abuse was coming from. He's also had a big crack at the media and admits that he's part of that. But we also speak in a week where negotiations to try and resolve the Hawthorne investigation fell apart on Friday, Saturday. Um, the AFL are in part blaming an article um, by Jake Nile. Jake got um, an exclusive interview with Jason Burt, who was Hawthorne's footy welfare boss at the time of a lot of these allegations, and he's been implicated. He's one of the people who some of the families want an apology or an acknowledgement from. He's conceded a couple of incidents were pretty heavy-handed, not incidents that are being investigated by this so-called review panel, but he has said he's done nothing wrong and that these Indigenous players left Hawthorne better for the experience. I thought that was an unfortunate comment. I know the AFL didn't want the story to be published. I know that um, I'm sure Chris Fagan wasn't thrilled that it was published. So or this was published in The Age on fr- last Friday, Friday night, memory. Saturday yep. morning. Yep. Um, look, it was. I, I know how careful The Age is now legally about these things. I think Jake Nile went through the ringer and did a really thorough job of writing what, in essence, was a big exclusive but a very straight up and down, no sort of in any way um, embellishments at all, none of his own emotion. And it, I think the AFL probably thought they were closer than they were. There is no way that Alistair Clarkson and co are going to apologise. They say they've done nothing wrong. The families want an apology. This will either go to the Human Rights Commission now or there will be a settlement from Hawthorne to the families. So that's that situation. And then you've got the ABC situation. I mean, if the ABC has allowed this to happen. Mm. Uh, well, Carol, I picked up my age on Saturday morning and I was, it was it was like a, a, a double whammy. And my overarching feeling after reading the two stories, one, as you said, Jake's uh, excellent interview. Uh, and as you said, it was very, it was non-editorialising. It was just a, a, a conversation with Jason Burt and that's what it was. And then, of course, to read the really terrific story by Osman Faruqi and Max Walden in the Weekend Age with this um, kicker line, the broadcaster's sudden exit from the ABC, meaning Stan Grant, has forced an internal reckoning. Now other ABC journalists are sharing their experiences of racism and demanding change. And what followed was an interview with more than 20 ABC current and former employees who went through anecdotes um, their emotions, their feelings, uh, what had happened in their situation. Caro, this this, uh, this um, discrimination has been inside the ABC for years and years and we should not be surprised because most organisations have really taken a lot of time to get with the program and, and understand. But it was an extraordinary story. What a damning of the ABC. Meanwhile, ABC chair... Ita Buttrose continues to blame News Corp and blame the vitriol that's out there in social media world. But Ita, you have to look inside the building because there's a lot of discontent. So to read these two stories, my overarching feeling was at the end of it, when is white Australia going to actually just step into the space of empathy and start to understand? And if we can't, 
like a friend of mine said at dinner last week, um, I can't put myself in Stan Grant's shoes. I'm not Aboriginal. Um, I'm I'm a privileged white person. I can't understand. Well, my answer to that is educate yourself, like tr- try really hard. And for some of us, it's more difficult than others. And I accept that and I appreciate that. But we have a referendum happening at the end of the year and it's compulsory voting and everybody really should do the right thing and start to try and enter the space, whether it's reading Kerry O'Brien and Thomas Mayo's most excellent handbook on the Yes campaign and what the voice to parliament means to their 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 um, communities, uh, whether it's reading Greg Sheridan's article in Tuesday's Australian, which says that there's way too much emotion about this and that Peter Dutton's very considered comments were correct and accurate and appropriate for the time. Um, whatever side you land on, just go out and read and, and try and understand as much as you can. But I also think, Corrie, and, and all of that is completely true and well explained and needs to be looked at, but it also comes down to an organisation looking after its own and defending its own. And whether it's... Um, and You know, it, you mean specifically in the journalism, in the journalist sense? Yeah, or, or just in employer sense or even team in terms of a teammate looking after themselves on the you know on the footy field so it was reminiscent of the Julia Gillard that brilliant documentary that was um on a few years ago where wherein I think Penny Wong and others said you know we took the decision not to call out the sexism and the attacks and the personal stuff because we just thought we'd draw attention to it in hindsight that was a mistake Mm. we should have identified it. And we all looked back and I watched that and went, oh, this is just horrific. And how did we all sit by and not say more about the the sexist attacks on Julia Gillard, comments about a relationship, et cetera, et cetera, just appalling. And nobody did anything thinking that that was the right way to go. I mean, I remember when um, Sam Newman did that mannequin on the footy show, going into work for the next week at the age, and nobody said anything. Nobody brought it up with me. I find that extraordinary. Nobody... Can you just remind, because it, it, I think there are really strong parallels with, with um, sexism. I absolutely agree with you, because this is about equality, equality in the workplace, whatever your background. Just remind potties who aren't familiar with what happened at that, at that episode. Oh, well... On the footy show one night, there'd been conversations about someone had written to the Green Guide about not liking the clothes I wore on Footy Classified. I can't remember the whole background to it, but Sam Newman walked on set the following week with um, a mannequin dressed in underwear, I think, and with my face, he staple gunned a photo of me with a staple yeah. gun. Which, to which the, was quite to aggressive the, to on the camera. Top of the mannequin, yeah. and then tried all these different outfits on. And everybody killed themselves laughing. Some people looked embarrassed. But, you know, one of the people on the panel was, um, or one of the people involved was the host, Gary Lyon, who I worked with on Footy Classified. And, you know, it was just a horrific embarrassment. It was just so, I was watching it bizarrely that night. I was so embarrassed. Got, you know, it was just awful. I was watching it with my 17-year-old daughter who said she felt sick. Mm. You know, my son and my husband wanted to go around and Actually, you know, physically, yes. but you know, obviously they didn't. Anyway, all of that was terrible, and and I made it clear that I was filthy, and people from the AFL and all the other media were disgusted, but nobody said anything to me at the age for a week, or over a week, and then about a week and a half later, Sam Lane said she wanted to write something. She wrote a column about it. She was writing for the Age at the time, and even she said. I think, I can't remember, but I think she said, I'm sorry, I haven't even spoken to you about this and Mm. I'm writing something so much later. 
And then the footy show turned on her as well. And anyway, and the women, then a, a group of women board members from footy clubs wrote in and they got smashed. In fact, they ended up, Susan Alberti ended up taking legal action against Channel 9 and I think certainly got a settlement and her costs covered. So, but the point was a week and a half later, a few of the bosses at the age came up to me and said, look, oh, we're really sorry. We never mm. said anything. I, I understand. And, and I understand. And, and, I, and I just said, look, why didn't you? Why? And they said, look, we were just embarrassed. Yeah, I think people have to sometimes process it. And there has been um, there has been a lot of discussion, particularly in the States at the moment. There's a really interesting, and it's not just a Democrat kind of view here. It's also a sensible Republican view as well. But there's a, there's a feeling that if something is deeply uncomfortable, we have to acknowledge it in ourselves and we have to have the courage to speak out about it. It's actually about having the courage of your convictions. And I think that's the thing. In the... There's not sort of immediate parallels here, but during the Surrender Writers Festival, we had that session, Carol, you might recall, the Redfern speech 30 years on. So this was reflecting upon the 1992 speech of the then Prime Minister, Paul Keating, who went to Redfern Park and addressed an entire uh, parkland of Indigenous folk and non-Indigenous folk. And he took bl- he took blame for what had happened to their people on behalf of the government. He said it was like I'm sorry, but he said we took your children away. You know, we introduced you to um, substances. We bought sugar. You know, which diminished your lifespan. All of this sort of stuff. It was an incredibly powerful and moving moment on our panel. So we had Thomas Mayo, we had Larissa Berendt, the Indigenous um, activist and lawyer, her husband Michael Lavash, who was then Attorney General under Paul Keating, and um, Inala Cooper, who is uh, a Melbourne University academic and the daughter of Mick Dodson, who had, you know, huge memories as a child of it. Michael Lavash said, we knew Paul was going to Sydney to make this speech. We, I was in the inner cabinet. We had no idea of how big this would be. We had no idea of the impact of it. We were too busy focusing on whether we were going to win the next election, which was in a few months' time. And he said, I'm embarrassed now to kind of think about that, about how somebody reported and said, oh, Paul's just made this speech. And we had no idea of the size of it or the momentum. And sometimes in in history, when things unfold like this, they do catch us unaware. But I think when it comes to something like racism or sexism or some sort of abuse, if you feel inside that something is not right, if your moral compass has gone skew because of what's happened, have the courage to say, whether you're management or whether you're the person involved or whether you're just the audience like us watching, we should all have the courage to say, this isn't good enough. Yeah, well, I think sometimes it's embarrassment. The ABC not speaking up for Stan Grant is sort of extraordinary, really, when you think about, they must have known the huge attacks he was receiving. I know some of them felt that it was probably a bad idea. Their coverage was badly thought out anyway of the coronation, but that doesn't excuse them not speaking up for him. Oh, I agree with you. And I think in the end, that is the reason he's probably walked away as much as anything. Have you ever had an editor not stand up for you? Um, no, not not like that. Although in, in several situations where I've been attacked from the outside, people haven't ever They've said They've gone missing or something, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, you know, you've got to stand up for yourself and I, I understand that. But I think, well, I think it's probably, and again, I go back to Julia Gillard, you know, people misread things. I mean, when she made that extraordinary misogynistic speech, 
regarding um, Tony Abbott. And the media just completely missed that because there was other stuff going on and they didn't see that this was a big international story. They couldn't see the forest for the trees. So, no, it's a really, it's an interesting time with black and white Australia and having, you know, you you speak about the Redfern speech. I remember leaving in 2000, September 2000, leaving Homebush Stadium after Cathy Freeman had won the gold medal in the 400 metres and seeing black and white Australia embrace each other, Indigenous families, white families hugging each other, all celebrating this golden moment and thinking this is a turning point. And I'm so sad to say that nearly quarter of a century on, I'm not sure how far we've come. Well, I, I think you're right. And Marcia Langton, again, going back to the Sorrento Festival, the Writers' Festival, on the final day we had the Voice to Parliament discussion and Marcia Langton kicked it off. Patricia Carvelis, who was the moderator, said to her, you know, Marcia, you begin. And um, and she brought up, um, you know, she was sort of talking about they'll claim us when they want us and they won't claim our culture when they should claim us. And she was talking about a conversation that she'd had with a younger colleague whose parents in Perth uh, follow the footy and love a number of Indigenous players on their team, past and present. You know, I think that they're great champions and fantastic, but they uh, they don't want to vote yes for the voice to parliament. So these are the complexities that we're all kind of having to deal with. You know, what what's the level of respect? Anyway, it's a, it is such an interesting discussion, but it was a very interesting age newspaper on Saturday morning. They, these are big issues, and they won't go away. They will not go away. Um, and you know, they're going to. They've got to be more discussions leading up to the referendum, which will be later in the year. In a week, Corrie, when Tina Turner died. Oh my goodness! And you know, I, I had no idea that she was gravely ill in Switzerland. I probably didn't realise she was she eighty. She was eighty three when she died, um, and you know she, she had such a, well, such a cultural sort of artistic icon. And I know icon is an overused word, but she really, really was. And you know the the early days with Ike, you know the revelations later on about the abuse she suffered, you know the the symbolism. This woman going out on her own and becoming the one of the biggest international stars in the world shaking off Ike, the bully, and whatever else, and actually, you know, making making this extraordinary career. But, the, but then, of course, her um, relationship with Australia and um, the way the NRL <laughs> sort of brought her over, the, the advertisement, they I think they filmed the ad over in London, that amazing ad that was one of the best ad campaigns ever, and her performing at NRL Grand Finals and just putting them on the map with the pregame it was entertainment. An, it was an, yeah, amazing branding, very clever branding. Caro, her, um, Tina Turner's memoir, My Love Story, the autobiography, came out uh, maybe five or six years ago. It was a really good – I was surprised at the time. We bought a few copies for the bookshop, sold them, bought some more, sold them. It was really interesting. I kept thinking at the time, what is it about Tina Turner when we had so many other celebrity memoirs available at that time? I, I, and and even with this outpouring of love and grief that we've seen in the last few days, I, it, gosh, I found it interesting because I didn't realise to what extent she has been a, a hero to so many people. And um, I, I urge potties who follow Instagram to have a look at Alicia Keys, the African-American singer, and um, she has a tribute to Tina Turner there. It's a piece of film. Um, it's narrated by Oprah Winfrey, and it's interviews with a couple of other black women. And it was a it was a gathering that occurred, I think, probably about five or six years ago, Caro. And Alicia says everyone who came that day, 
they didn't know who else was coming. So in walks Gladys Knight, in walks Diane Carroll, who you and I love, in walks Angela Bassett, Janet Jackson, Haley Berry, Tina Turner, Cicely Tyson, Maya Angelou, all of these great, strong, brave, amazing African-American women. And Alicia Keys says, immediately, I knew this was going to be a defining moment in my life forever. I can barely watch that. I've watched it several times now. I can barely watch that footage without tearing up at just the pride and the power so of So where those can we women. get a hold of this? On Instagram. But if you, but I think because it'll be a YouTube, if you just tap in Alicia Keys or if you tap in probably, um, probably on Oprah somewhere, if you just put in Oprah Winfrey and maybe some of those names that I just mentioned, it will probably come up. I don't know what. I don't know what the circumstances were. It looks like somebody's having a big party at their house, probably Oprah's. But it's just this gathering of powerful, brave women. And I think that's what Tina Turner probably represented, apart from the fact that she was a great showgirl. She had this amazing, gravelly voice that was just so suited to rock and roll of the time. Um, she turned herself into a great, a fantastic act. I mean, to get away from Ike Turner, her former husband, who was who abused her, she had to do a deal whereby she she gave up all of her rights to all of the music to everything. The only thing she asked for was her stage name, which he'd invented. So he gave her the stage name, but he took away the millions, and she had to rebuild her life financially and and emotionally again, and did so. Yeah, no one can no one can say where the nutbush was invented. We'll talk well, about it, Nutbush in a minute. <laughs> well, sort of in, a, in Australia, but they think. <laughs> we don't know. So my favourite Tina Turner song is it's an absolute um, slam dunk is River Deep Mountain High. Oh, well, you know, snap. And you know what? I was thinking when, when I posed this, when we talked about this question, you know, I was thinking, oh, you know, we don't need another hero because that was just uh, that was just about the only good thing about that Mad Max movie. But the other day, I was listening to uh, our fellow podcasters, um, Patricia Carvelis, um, on the Party Room, and she had Nikki Sarver in with her. And at the end of the in, end of the interview, she said after they'd talked about. The Voice, Peter Dutton, you know, the whole Albanese one year on, government one year on, all this important stuff. PK then says, so let's just talk about Tina Turner. You're a huge Tina Turner fan, Nikki. Now, what's your favourite song? And she said exactly that. And I thought, yep, that is just... Oh, it's just one of the best songs one of ever. The best Not songs. just one of Tina's best songs. And do you have a favourite quote? I do. Tina Turner once said, happiness is the greatest beauty secret. Oh, Tina... <laughs> Oh, look, he was a, yeah, he was an Which is why you look woman. so glowing and beautiful this morning, <laughs> Caroline Wilson. I don't know about that, Corrie, but yeah, it's a good quote. You're he very was a happy. great artist, just a great artist and a great story. Anyway, Corrie, time for a drink. The cocktail cabinet is brought to us by Prince Wine Store and welcome Miles Thompson, who's going to talk to us about wines from Greece. Now, Miles, it's lovely to see you. We should point out that Prince Wine Store has a special on at the moment yeah. with a series of Greek wines. So in this particular case, if you're buying wines that you mentioned today as part of this special, you won't be getting the 10% discount because you're already getting a discount. You get 15%. They're all on offer from the weekend. So I'm going to find myself in Greece sometime soon. So I'm interested. So many good wines. 
Um, well, I wasn't aware. So I've, I've <laughs> can, can enjoyed just, wine in Greece, but not necessarily Greek wine. Yeah. Um, Yasu, um, Miles. Yasu. Um, Miles, I don't understand. Are we getting 25% off there? Or no. You, I'm confused. <laughs> Do you now. listen to what I just said? Well, you won't I'm, be getting the... Very... You won't be getting the special discount because yes. you're already getting another these discount. These are already discounted 15%. Off. Okay, so, so we don't have to write mess, M E double S. No, whenever not we do for these, these particular ones. Big offers, just speaking on behalf of the off, listeners. So. Okay, that's Just fine. in case there's any confusion, I don't want to upset anyone. So, Miles, <laughs> t- kick us off. You've got a so, few, which so is I, exciting. I, I picked, I picked th- three of kind of my favourites from, from that, and I'd actually had them before too. So, the first one is the Argyros Atlantis White, and excuse all my pronunciations during this. I, I'm probably. My French is better than my Greek. Well, speaking of Patricia Carvelis, <laughs> we need her. Uh, so this is a blend of uh, Assertico, uh, Athene, Edani, and it's from Santorini. Um, so the main main grape you see usually in Santorini is Assertico. They're often super, super expensive because obviously land on Santorini's uh, pretty hard to come by these days. So the vineyards are worth a lot of money. So normally most Assertico is sort of like 40 50 70 80 dollars so this is a nice little intro into some of the wine the white wines of greece which sometimes are a little bit aromatic or otherwise quite dry and textural and this has a bit of sort of both of all of those so really I think nice we've talked about this wine before i remember yeah. we've talked about it's a possibly wine. yeah normally a certico by itself but this is a nice little blend so it has a little more sort of aromatic lift to it as well so that kind of lemony pithy sort of thing going on little kind of pretty sort of florals on it as well so really, and I love these sort of white blends too, so, and super sunny. So I think an awesome sort of starter for, for, for Greek wines. Sounds to brighten great. up some grey winter yes. winter days now Absolutely. that winter is almost, a, well, a day or two away. Yeah, that's right. Miles, how much does this one cost? Uh, under- so that is normally $40 and it's 34 on special. Wow. Fabulous. So yeah. that's the Atlantis white. And tell us the name again. Uh, so Agiros is the producer. Um, yeah, that's right. He and, has a, a and Carol, a you know why it's well, called a, a, Atlantis, don't you? Because they think the lost city is underneath Santorini. You do know that, don't you? Miles? I didn't know that. Well, there you go. I've lo- watched lots of other things on like lost cities and things like that, but uh, I didn't know that. No, yeah, there's a big, there's a big sort of bay crater, like crater, or something. yeah, yeah, and it's maybe it's like I have a bay heard that, area, and they think it's underneath there. Oh, anyway, super go interesting. On. Wonderful country. Uh, yeah, I've never been. I really want to go. Yeah, and and should. just a, a quick sort of mention: the wines are probably better than they've ever been out of Greece as well. The, you know, there was a lot of oak use, you know, many years ago, and they used to blend a lot of this stuff with like Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay and things like that. And they've sort of pulled away and just leaning into their native varietals. It's kind of like drinking Italian wine. You know, it's a whole nother, you know, a whole nother range of unique sort of varietals and new, unique flavors and. And aromas as well. So super interesting to drink the wines from. So Okay. And you've got another wine? So no, no, I've got another red, which is the, the well, it's pronounced Yaya, which is G-A-I-A. Yaya Arahirico. All right. So this is a red wine. Got a bit more. So this, the, the reds tend to have a bit of tannin and bite to them. There are some lighter stuff. But this is sort of mid-weight in style. Lovely kind of like smoky sort of black fruit. A little bit of acidity and grip and tannin. But it's on vineyards that are really high up. So it has a... Nice little bit of freshness as well. So sometimes Arahitico can be quite sort of dense and chewy, and this is more to the sort of fresher side of things. So that black fruit, sort of fresh kind of like currants and that lovely sort of little bite of sort of tannin that makes it perfect with food. And that is, um, that's normally also $40 and 34 on special as well. Wow. So we've got a white and we've got a red. Yeah, and then I'll give you another red because those these are the sort of the two main reds in Greece. So if you're sort of looking to introduce yourself to the wines of Greece, Thymiopolis 
Zinamavro and it's his Young Vines Zinamavro. So if, you, if everyone's had like Nebbiolo from Italy, this is very, very similar, kind of light in colour, pretty aromatics, kind of fresh, like crunchy sort of red fruits, but has a little bit of that tannin bite again, uh, quite sort of, you know, really sort of like barely sort of little tannins on them. And, but kind of looks quite light and fresh in the glass, but lots of flavour behind it as well. Lovely sort of dried fruits and dried flower thing kind of going on. Oh, sounds fab. Really fantastic. And Thymiopolis is a Zinamavro, uh, I don't know what you'd call them. That's all he makes. So he has like Thymiopolis Zinamavro. Yeah. Such a beautiful name. Yeah. They're all beautiful names. Very cool. Yeah, very cool. And where does he make, where's his vineyard? I, th- I think that, that's Nemea. So I think up, up in the hills, sort of in the main sort of part of Greece. It is. I think I think I think it actually borders onto maybe Macedonia up there somewhere. Anyway, oh, I think it's that northern beautiful. sort of part up over mm, there. Yeah. Quite hilly, yeah, and quite hilly, kind of quite high up. So same sort of I think you know similar look to what you'd see in sort of Piedmont, those sort of kind of high hills, kind of backed up with the mountains there. So yeah, but that's a really great little sort of intro into Greek wines. I think a couple of reds, which they're sort of really well known for, and a really lovely crunchy aromatic wine. Everyone, and how much is the last oh, one? Uh, the last one is uh, $31, down from 37 And Miles, Brilliant. are you putting together a special dozen or a box or something like that with your no, Greek special? No, we're not. Special? Oh, okay. All right, just thought. The thing about it, it some, marketing idea, Yeah, we, we do sometimes with the wines. Yeah. The, it's the sort of cheapest stuff we had on was sort of 30-ish, so it starts to become a bit expensive. Sometimes if we have a few sort of more inexpensive wines on there, we can, we can get a nice box, but sometimes those boxes become mm. a little bit... Well, we can just buy a dozen of all of those. Just buy a dozen. Yeah, just buy a dozen of your favourites. The thing about Greece, people obviously there are beautiful islands, and there's Mm. a Peloponnese, you know, Mm. coastline, and but inland Greece and some of those mountain areas and gorges are just spectacular. Have you ever been to Delphi? No, that's oh wow, that's beautiful. It's a it's an absolute ambition. That's a really good day trip from Athens. I was just revisiting uh, my brother Michael which is by Mary Stewart and set around Delphi. And I'm desperate. Mary Stewart, of course. It involves. Of course it's Mary Stewart. It involves a road trip. And well, anyway, it's, it's about a brother who disappeared and it's Mm. absolutely brilliant. It's not her normal. That would be your 22nd Mary Stewart, I reckon. It's a great book. I've got a fabulous secondhand copy (laughs) with the, um, the columns of um, Delphi on the front. Oh. Miles, they're fabulous recommendations. Yeah, I hope so. And you'll get them on your show notes, but they all sound pretty reasonable. I'd be heading to Prince Wine yeah. Store to buy them. Please do. It was a super popular taste. It always is. We haven't had it in a couple of years, but it was it was huge. I think there's a lot of interest, so hopefully people get stuck in. Greek wines to be continued. Thank you, Miles, and thank you, Prince Wine Store. And remember, the promo code is M-E-S-S, that's short for Messenger, to receive your 10% podcast discount on anything you buy from www.princewinestore.com.au, Miss Jane, or just .com? .au. .au, thank you. Now it's time, Corrie, for BSF. You're going to carry this segment. Am I? Well, you, to, a, to a degree, because um, you've got a book, and it look, it's got a great title, Hello Beautiful. Hello Beautiful by Anne Napolitano. Anne is an American author. She is in her early 50s. She might be about 51, I think, 52. And Hello Beautiful is the title of this family drama, and uh, the the title of it I'll come to in a minute Caro, the New York Times described this book when it came out a couple of months ago. They said, it's like little women, but with basketball. (laughs) Okay. Um, I have to say that the American reviewers are 
way more effusive about this novel than um, the more uh, still positive reviews from other reviewers around the world. Uh, I think because uh, Americans, as you're reading this, you just know why Americans would love this. Well, what do you think? Well, I think it's terrific, but I wouldn't go to the levels. I'll read you out a couple of the quotes in a minute. But um, but it is a really, really good yarn. It's the story of four sisters, the Padvano sisters, an Italian family um, who live in, or uh, I think the father is Italian, um, who live in a Chicago neighbourhood, lower middle class. They're best friends. They're sisters. Julia, the eldest one, is a uh, is a very clever, clever academically. She's a planner. She always look is looking to the next step, the future. She thinks she has her whole life mapped out as somebody who's going to combine work, motherhood, and a happy marriage. Sylvie, her the second sister, and these two are very close. So they remind me of um, you know the Bennett sisters, Lizzie and Jane. They've got that kind of older thing happening. The older siblings. Sylvie is a bit of a dreamer. She loves books. She works in the local library. And she's waiting for the true, one true great love. She's a real romantic and she believes that that's what happens to everybody if you wait. Cecilia and Emmeline are the twins, younger. Cecilia is a really gifted artist and Emmeline is a natural caregiver who later in the book actually starts up a crèche. And from childhood, these four sisters are complete with each other. Their parents have a um, not unhappy marriage, but not you wouldn't say deeply happy, and there are interesting issues and backstories there as well. But it, but early on, when Julia goes to college, she meets William Walters, and everyone's life forevermore is changed. And it is it is the ghosts of William's past that continue over the years to creep back into his life, which affects the four sisters. That's at the guts of this story. Now, he's not a train wreck of a person. I'm not going to give too much away about William and, and his backstory, but he is a good man. And this is not an evil story of abuse. And it's more kind of the emotional dramas and the, the situations that we can get into when people are stubborn. And... Uh, I think it's a really lovely book. Um, the It starts at the very beginning. I'm not giving anything away, but it starts with, for the, this is the f- opening line, the, for the first six days of William Walter's life, he was not an only child. Um, and then, of course, you think, well, okay, so what happened if he wasn't an only child, but then he be- obviously became an only child, and then we go into that backstory. So that's really interesting. Um, William discovers... Uh, solace and friendship through basketball. So that's why they call it Little Women with Basketball component to it. But the other thing I love about this book, Carol, is that there are three narrators um, and eventually there's a fourth one who's one of the children. We cover a, a time span from the 80s to um, probably present day or maybe not quite present day. And um, the three uh, the three main nar- narrators are William, and Julia, the older sister, and Sylvie, the middle sister. And I think she swaps between the different voices really effectively. A lot of novelists have problems with that. Now let's get to the glowing praise. The Washington Post, Hello, beautiful, will make you weep buckets because you come to care so deeply about the characters and their fates. Poppycock. I mean, really, I wasn't weeping buckets. It was sad and there were some tender moments and it's a beautiful novel, but like that's just really overblowing it. Anyway, I recommend this book highly. Hello, beautiful. It is a good book club book. Uh, it is very accessible, easy to read, and I'm going to give it to you, Cara, to have a read. So oh. aren't you lucky? 
I'm very lucky. It's you very good timing, that. Corey. That is th- that's a big thank you for me. Now we've both been thank you. That sounds fabulous. We've both been watching Blue Lights on. Mm. Uh, is it Stan or is it SBS, SBS on demand? SBS on demand. Yeah, sorry, I thought it was SBS on demand. Miss Jane, please. Your show notes are just really. Oh, oh no, that's Corey. my fault. <laughs> no, that'll be that'll be my oh, fault. I blame Miss Jane. Don't and it's you. Jane. Jane, I demand an apology right now. I'm sorry, Jane. I'm sorry. I'm saying sorry before you've demanded it. <laughs> We've been watching Blue Lights and I thought it was SBS yeah, on demand. Yeah, it's my fault. No wonder you have fights in your house over the streaming <laughs> services, honestly. So Anna from the op shop recommended this to She did. In a, in a group in a group text to the Cornballs, who were the walking group, the original walking group from 2019. We're still going around and now we don't share walks. We share what's on Netflix or Stan. We do. We do. But um, she described it as a gritty Irish police drama, it's so, it, it really is. It, it's reminiscent of the bill in mm. a way, isn't but, it? But, but, but a cleverer bill, don't you think? Oh, yeah. Well, well, the bill Well, the bill was pretty clever going back and the characters were incredibly oh. well-crafted, but no, it, it is. It became a bit Midsummer Murders toward the end there, oh, Carol, but this it, is it's a got really many, good It's got many parter. layers. It's got many layers and it's set in Belfast and it's just extraordinary, some of the stories, isn't it? The bullying, the bad behaviour and the... Um, the introduction of the various characters in this police station, I guess, police network. Yeah, the, set, the setup is that there are three recruits, and they're on probation. So, and they're, and they're obviously they're paired up with different senior, more senior, who, who in themselves are an interesting cast of characters. But that's it. So we kind of like the idea is you glue onto the three. Are they going to make it? And there's a clear bad egg, bully from the sidelines, who turns out to be. Um, turns out to be a coward, quite frankly. Mm, it turns out to be related to somebody who's a high-ranking police officer. Yep, yep, and who's yeah, pretty unimportant. Hate, hate that person. <laughs> well, well, look, I'm only two episodes in. Mm. Have you watched all six, have you? I've watched four. So it get, it really turns because there's this um, – so in Belfast, of course uh, – Still today, there is there are you know there are there are gangs. There's gang warfare. There's you know drug lords, drug cartels, and there's that kind of kneecapping IRA leftover element, which oh, is the quite... criminal underbelly is more oh. scary than the mafia. I mean, it, it's quite seriously horrific. The stuff that's coming out even early in the show, and the response of these young inter- interns or cadets, all of whom have some pretty ordinary moments and all of whom are put under a huge amount of pressure by management. Totally, totally. And, and you know, uh, what, I, what I'm sort of loving as the series goes on is that the, the drama, the action is moving a little bit from the three recruits and their day-to-day to now the crime boss and his family and what's happening there and what's his role. I mean, it's really, and really he's interesting. And by... I, can't, I haven't got it. I'm looking yeah. for his name, but he was. Do you know how we, we saw him, Caro? He was um, the father of Mary. No, sorry, the uncle of Mary in the Secret Garden in the beautiful film version of that of a few years ago. Among his, yeah, okay. Well, we going. His name would be. You, you look it up because you're quicker than me. Um, but uh, he he plays a really good role. But uh, there are um, there are some really terrific. Uh, I mean, having spent some time in Belfast, it, it captures the gritty. John Lynch. That's it, John Lynch. He's who's really been in, clever. He's been well. He's been in in a lot of different things, but he's a, he's a great actor. He's um he's mesmerising every time he comes on the screen. But there are great scenes of Belfast, 
and the Northern Ireland, Northern Irish cu- countryside. So if you've never been to, this may put you off going to Belfast, this show actually, oh, but it, re- sure but it really does. is a terrific representation of the city and the surrounds. Sliding Doors is the one I remember him from, In the Name of the Father and Angel Baby. No, he's a great, he's a great um, great yeah, actor. Yeah, and and really there's good. so many, all, the young cast is brilliant. I think that um, the script is fantastic, but it is very understated. And I, I know there's going to be more layers to this, but yeah, highly recommend Blue, Blue Lights. Lights. Now, Corrie, you've been cooking and you are famous for your bar snacks and your fiveses, as you call them. Sometimes they're hot suggestions. <laughs> Sometimes they're not hot. But this one sounds fabulous. Prosciutto wraps. I reckon you've had this, Caro. I reckon you've had this a few times. It's a it's a really easy one, potties, and it looks amazing and people go, they just go nuts over it. But the other thing too that I've been doing more recently, the last year or two, Caro, is if we have fish or chicken or something for dinner, I'll have this as the side, as the accompaniment. So... Um, that's, uh, that's, you know, it's a good way to get the greens into you, <laughs> as they say. So uh, I do not know where this recipe came from. It's been in my recipe book for, I reckon, probably 15 or 20 years. I suspect it's, it's an old Vogue food and wine magazine of some sort. So I don't want to say that this is Corrie's prosciutto wraps. We're just going to call it prosciutto wraps. And this makes about 12 of them. So, of course, I will usually double that if you're having eight or ten people or something for lunch or dinner and you want to do a nice bar snack that makes everybody feel full but not too full. So I would double the mixture here. And it says 24 baby green beans, topped and tailed, but again, you be the judge of how many beans you want. The reason I chose this recipe today, Carol, is that I know beans officially are out of season, but I think they've had a late season because the beans through autumn have been absolutely yep. delicious. Do you agree? Yeah, well, they're certainly looking beautiful in the green grocer. We eat a lot of beans. It's one of my favourite vegetables and you can do a lot with it and it's a great accompaniment and it also is great in Thai salads and all that and stir fries and everything. Great in curries. Uh, but they're, yep. they're really good at the moment. So the recipe is this, 24 baby green beans topped and tailed, micro salad leaves or wild rocket, two tablespoons of toasted pine nuts, two tablespoons of grated Parmigiano Reggiano, a tablespoon of extra virgin olive oil, juice of a lemon, 12 thin slices of prosciutto and a bit of salt and pepper. Then you make the dressing, which is pretty basic, a tablespoon of balsamic vinegar, three tablespoons of extra virgin olive oil, a pinch of dried chili flakes, two cloves of crushed garlic and a heaped tablespoon or however much you want of um, chopped flat leaf parsley, finely chopped. You put the dressing ingredients in a small bowl, you whisk and set it aside. You place the beans in a bowl, cover them with boiling water and leave them for a minute. Did you know this trick? Yep. Yeah. That's what I always do with beans or asparagus, yeah, or like with asparagus. If you cook them on the on the on the hot plate or you put them in the microwave, there's a very good chance that you're going to end up with grey, soggy beans, so you don't want that. So you put the bowl you cover the bowl with boiling water, you leave it for a minute and then you drain the water and you refresh the beans in the cold water. You can then combine the beans, the leaves, the nuts and the cheese and you drizzle with olive oil and the lemon juice and the crushed salt flakes and the ground pepper. So you've got all this lovely, yummy, beautiful mix. And then you lay out your prosciutto slices. Now we know prosciutto can be problematic sometimes, so just you probably need, I always get a few extra slices because there's always one that doesn't behave. They stick. Oh, they're pains in the neck. Lay out a prosciutto slice and then put a handful of the bean mix on, on the, um, you know, on, on the slice of prosciutto and then roll it up. 
And you are the can, beans chopped up? I chop them up. Yeah. This recipe doesn't say to do that. They, I've done them a few times where they're long and they're sort of sticking out a bit like asparagus spears. Yep, that would look but great. It looks great, but I actually kind of prefer it the other way too. And I usually stick a skewer in it too, but it's up to you. But but it does look really pretty if the beans are sticking out like an asparagus um, roll or something like that. And then just give them a bit of a drizzle of olive oil before you put them on the plate. Usually I... Um, you know, decorate the plate with, with rocket or something that's green and lovely and you crack pepper on the whole lot and it's very, very pretty and it's really fresh. And um, obviously the prosciutto element is not great for vegetarian friends, but you could maybe just do, you know, come up with some other idea for that because the mix inside is lovely. And that is the prosciutto wrap. Sounds absolutely beautiful. I, I do something similar with asparagus, which is really, and it's just literally asparagus with a bit of goat's cheese or parmesan and a bit of rocket or with or without rocket and wrapped in prosciutto. But that sounds like a real substantial meal. It almost. is a bit, yeah. And as I said, the bean mix you could use if you were just having, you know, a piece of meat and didn't know what to do. So that's that, Caro. That was BSF, which you really carried today, Corrie. Well oh, done you. Sorry. Well done you. <laughs> Hello I've just beautiful. Been indulging on popular culture. Hello, beautiful. Blue lights on SBS On Demand and Corrie's, although not Corrie's, prosciutto wrap. Oh, I forgot to say why it's called Hello, Beautiful. I was going to tell you that. It's because their father of the Padvano sisters calls one of the sisters. He has a different catch cry for each sister, but the main sister in this is referred to as Hello, Beautiful whenever he comes home from work. Hello, Beautiful. Oh. That's really sweet. Anyway, I forgot to say that. That was BSF for Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. And isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131806? Corrie, you're grumpy. Washing the car. Oh, another car one. Mm. <laughs> another car one. I, look, I'm lucky enough to have in my life somebody who enjoys washing my car. And truth be told, I don't mind. And during COVID, I did a fair, as you know, I was doing the miles, um, around uh, delivering books and particularly to country areas um, on the Mornington Peninsula. So my car was often dirty. I didn't mind a, a lockdown day when I was washing my car. Not anymore. Too busy for that. But I'm lucky that Pete enjoys doing it. But um, our little duster buster thingy was on the blink and there's just so much sand in my car because of the dog. So I thought the other day when I was steaming through the suburbs of Melbourne, I saw a car wash and I thought, you know what, I'm going to lash out. So I thought it, it's a bit like having, um, you know, the locomotive version of a cut and blow wave, I guess, because every salon has a different price depending where you go. Yeah. I, and they, boy, do they vary. So they do vary. And I went into one that has become a bit swish since I last went there a few years ago. The choices, Caro. And this is what sort of made me grumpy. What happened to the simple car wash where you can just go in and just, uh, you know, somebody hoses it down and gives it a bit of a sponge and a bit of a vacuum and away you go? Sounds like yours needed a bit more than that, <laughs> as mine does. Well, I was talking about this with my daughter-in-law, Lib, the other day, and she had been through a similar circumstance, suddenly needed the car. Florence had been throwing um, yogurt around in the back seat or something seemed to be on every second panel inside. So she thought, I'm going to go and do this too. And we were having a discussion like what's happened to car washers? And also they really get you at the at the cashier because it's a bit like, do you want fries with that? The old McDonald's thing. They say, yep. oh, do, do you want to cut and polish or do you want to? I mean, we don't know what this means. Exterior service, interior service. Well, I'm assuming that they're going to do both. 
but you've got different pay structures for those. Mitts and sponges. Well, I mean, do I have to pay extra to have a mitt? Somebody have a mitt on their hand to do my wipe door and boot jams. What's a jam? A G-A-M-B-S. I had no idea. You I didn't, I tried you didn't that go, look, I, I, I've got a apply, recommendation apply, for you. Apply tyre shine to match your clean vehicle. Do you want your tyre? So you're in a quandary. No, you don't need a tyre No, but shine. you're standing there and there's five five deep behind you. And you're like, what choices, what choices? So, you're a successful so, mature woman, <laughs> mother of three, grandmother of four, and, so, and so, you can't make a decision about your tyre. So I ended up, I ended up like, I go, oh, yeah, that, that, that. I ended up spending $85. And because the queue was long and I was embarrassed, I just went, yeah, okay, thinking, oh, my God. God, I've just spent $85 in the car. Lib told me that she was in a similar situation with the yogurt situation with Florence. She spent more than $100. And um, and when she got the car out, that there was still yogurt on some of the inside panels. They actually hadn't used their mitts properly inside, Caro. So she's taken photographs and she wants to take that further with that organisation. But meanwhile, Will's listening to us talk about this and just goes, there's a really simple idea here, you silly girls. You know, just don't go to a car wash. It's a very spoilt, yes, it's a middle class complain. Yes, I shouldn't have done it. I know all that. But it's just so many choices at a car wash. Once in a while, it's worth lashing out. So I what's mean, it's, your tip? Well, I, I've paid heaps more than that for the full shebang. You know, when your car's had firewood and dogs and beach and sand and and it's disgusting and they've done a complete makeover but I've found a place there's a few of them dotted around Melbourne two words Corrie muck off have you ever been to muck off no m-u-c-k off I've got it it's they're fabulous I mean they might charge um what they charge is probably around what you've just said or even more for a big job but this is one of the great cleans. But do you you'll have all the little get. categories, or do you just you go drop I'm it doing off? Hundred bucks, one hundred fifty. They're tucked. The one near me is tucked away in a little side street. You leave your car, leave your keys, come back, and the muck is off. And is, are the coins? The coins they've found on the floor are they still there? Oh well, I don't know if I can't remember them. Put them on the dashboard. Coins. The nice person the other day pulled about. Oh, it was about eight dollars richer. He found all these two and one dollar coins oh, and put them on my. Like when I found a $50 note in the jacket I hadn't worn <laughs> since last winter the other that day. That would be one of your trans-seasonal, trans-seasonal jackets, Garrow. Corrie, that's it. That, that boy, do they come in handy. Corrie, that was grumpy. It's now time for six quick questions. Also brought to us by, brought to us by Red Energy. Brought, bought. Corrie, I, I know bring and, bro- <laughs> bring and brought. It's just that I never think about it. Anyway. Corrie, what name should we watch out for as America heads towards the 2024 presidential election? Republican candidate Tim Scott. He's the only black Republican in the Senate. He is 57 and he's thrown his hat in the ring for the 2024 Republican nominee, presidential nominee, up against Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis. And I think we will hear more about him because he is a real point of difference. There's been so much negativity and woe is our country and just pessimism and anger coming from both sides, Democrats and Republican potential nominees. And this guy jumped onto the stage the other day to announce his nomination. He was dancing. He was happy. He was upbeat. He really has, uh, I think he's elevated the whole race into a whole new interesting um, kind of era. He's taken the combativeness out of it all. 
And he's going to be an interesting one for Democrats because, of course, he's a small L liberal. He's an African-American. He's young, which is interesting because remember that the president is not young, nor is no, Donald Trump. So I just think, keep, really I just think, I just think keep, keep an eye on him. And a, a former Republican senator who is, um, I think, assisting Tim Smith with his campaign said um, of the Democrats, he said, I think they're terrified him. Uh, they're terrified of him. Um, because he defies every narrative they have. And this is exciting for conservatives who believe that they have a candidate who carries their values and can, can implement their values and do so in a way that makes America proud. So keep your eye on that one, Caro. Um, my question to you is, where do you stand on Philip Schofield? This is a, a huge... Have you been following yeah, the story? So, I still can't quite work it out, but well, tell me. Well, it's it's pretty simple, Corrie, and um, the saying, honesty is the best policy, comes to mind. Philip Schofield is a massive name in Great Britain. I've always loved YouTubes of him because he and his on-set partner, they often get giggle attacks. Is it a morning show that he and his partner do, Carol? It, yeah, it, it's daytime TV. And They're often laughing themselves sick. And he and his, his female partner have often been rumoured to have been having an affair. He's a massive star in the UK. And look... He doesn't really grab me. He's, he, I think he's in his early 60s. He's 61 years old. He has been married, you know, through most of the time he's done this show. And it turns out he's gay, and which is absolutely fine. But he obviously, it's absolutely fine, except that he seems to have been living a lie for quite some time. And there has been this rumour and suggestion of an in-house, in-studio affair with a much younger man, um, a man who came to the show, came to ITV as a teenager. Philip Schofield helped him get the job. They, there have been investigations by um, ITV into the fact they're having a relationship. Both men have com- denied, deny, deny. They were lying. Philip Schofield is now saying he lied to protect the much younger man. He said the relationship might have been inappropriate, but it wasn't illegal. When he first came to work for ITV or when they first met, he might have been under the legal age, but that was not when the relationship started. It started much later. The relationship is now over. In the end, you know, the cover-up is always worse than the so-called crime. If you're having an affair with a younger man who is of legal age, that is absolutely fine. It's your business. But the cover-up... It so was, he stood down, hasn't he? Or he he's stood finished. himself down, yeah. He's gone. That's he's, it. He's, well, he, he's, he's resigned. Whereas he, he could have weathered the storm if he'd been up front and open. He could have. He could have become... Could Because he was so popular, he could have become, you know, the face of someone who has made a major life-changing decision. He could have become the face for so many things. But he... Not only did he hide his sexuality but he also hid this relationship. And when confronted by it and when there was an investigation, he lied. Now, I gather honesty hasn't been Philip Schofield's great boast of his personality in several situations during his time on ITV. And despite the fact that you see him giggling and he comes across as this great bloke, probably not everybody in ITV felt that about Philip Schofield. So I think that there were... I shouldn't were, laugh. It's actually quite tragic. I think there are a lot of people who are happy to see him go, but this British obsession with these sort of... B-grade celebrities. Is just extraordinary. And they always have a, a weird, you know, just a weird cover-up, quiet, bizarre well, well, I background mean, story. Yeah, you know? I know. I know. Well, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you know, there, 
they often have worse than a weird background story. I mean, Jimmy Savile comes to mind. Well, I was but, also thinking of Tory. You know, how many times over the years have we seen headlines along the way of Tory minister found in fishnet stockings or I know, know, on the I desk know. with the EA or... Yeah, <laughs> just... either male or female, yeah. female or male, depending on the MP. No, look, it's an extraordinary story. It has absolutely rocked ITV. He's gone and I just wonder how he could have salvaged this had he been honest from the start. But he, this was someone who obviously thought they were bigger than the show, bigger than the network. Corrie, which latest American book banning shocked you? Well, there's so much book banning going on at the moment. It's it's just, it's it's quite frightening. The Hill We Climb is the extraordinary poem by Amanda Gorman, the young American poet. You'll remember, Caro, at Joe Biden's inauguration. And she stood up in her magnificent yellow coat and her red hat, and she delivered The Hill We Climb, which I think is one of the most uplifting pieces of prose about nation coming together that I have ever heard recited. And this book of the poem, which has been available since the inauguration, uh, widely dispersed all around um, America, and indeed um, I have a copy myself, um, a parent at a Florida elementary school, one parent complained about the poem, said it was divisive and it has been pulled from the shelves. And um, Amanda Gorman, who's 25, said she was gutted to learn that her poem had been banned from the Bob Graham Education Centre in Miami Lakes. Um, And it was one of five books that this parent has challenged, including the ABCs of Black History and uh, a book on Cuba, on the history of Cuba. And the parent has said that um, they're not educational and that these books have indirectly hate, indirect hate messages. So Gorman, of course, has hit back on social media. Twitter's gone crackers. Uh, and, and everybody who believes in free speech and who loves this poem, like myself, has jumped on board. So um, that is pretty scary, Caro. That is dreadful. I just want to read you. This is That's just dreadful. This is just one part of this magnificent poem. And so we lift our gazes not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. We close the divide because we know to put our future first, we must first put our differences aside. We lay down our arms so we can reach out our arms to one another. Really? Okay. Corrie, that's a, that's a bad Sad story. Day. Yeah. Sad day. America. Caro, where did Daniel Andrews get lucky last week? Well, Daniel Andrews got very lucky last week because Damien Hardwick decided to walk away from coaching in the middle of the season on a day, the story broke on the eve of a pretty miserable state budget where a lot of people were pretty unhappy. It was obviously always sold as the fact it was going to be a really tough budget. They made it clear that the budget was going to be, you know, not easy, that Victoria has obviously amassed a huge amount of debt. The debt has to be paid off somehow, but money has to be ploughed into projects at the same time. There are some big losers out of this budget and it would have been, I think, a massive story. And obviously the ramifications will continue for Daniel Andrews. I mean, we'll see how that goes. Although, as we know, there's not much of an opposition at the moment. They've got their own problems. But it was completely, completely overshadowed by Damien Hardwick. Anyone who looks at social media, anyone who looks at Instagram, anyone who looks at all that, you know, Twitter and everything, it was all about Dimmer. Mm, I remember last week I said... How lucky, how lucky was... Daniel, uh, Premier Daniel Andrews. I, I remember saying to you last week, um, the week's biggest footy story, and you looked at me like, the week's? <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
tell you what. The look of horror on your face, which potties couldn't see. There was a lot of conspiracy theories. Did, you know, Dimar, did he get in the... Anyway, I don't actually think that's true, but I thought that was an extraordinary um, feat of timing for the government. The Nutbush Dance, as we discussed, are you a fan? I think I know what we're going to say here. And are you step perfect? I am step perfect. Come on, Jane. Yep, Jane's dancing around the studio. I am step perfect. You know I love a lion dance, Caro. Of course. Now I just want a bit of history on this. Um, it was uh, it's a it's a lion dance performed to the song Nut- Nutbush City Limits. It became very big in discos in the 1970s. For some reason, no one knows. Maybe it has something to do with lion dancing itself. Uh, Nutbush took off in regional Australia during the 1980s and it was performed at schools, social gatherings, community events, weddings, parties, anything, including the literary trivia night that we had at the (laughs) Sorrento Writers Festival. True. um, Where I might have seen you on the dance floor there, Caro. No, you actually didn't, but anyway. I did see our friend Jane who was in a moon boot hopping around doing some amazing stuff. Did you know, Caro, that the Nutbush was so popular that it was implemented in some Australian state schools curricula? No. <laughs> Exercise in the morning. Anyway, that's, uh, you know, Vale Tina Turner and you've left us with a wonderful, crazy, fabulous legacy. And I don't care if the rest of the world say that this is the Australian dance. I'm proud of that. Caro, what's this week's amazing fact? I'm going to talk to you about Basil Sellers, a man well known to you, a great Australian. Well, in fact, Basil was born in India. He's 88 years old. He migrated, emigrated to Australia with his family in 1948, went to King's College in Adelaide, where I think he left school at 16 or 17, ended up becoming a stockbroker at a very young age. He's one of the richest people in the country. He is an amazing philanthropist and benefactor for many people and many things, but obviously the arts. I spoke to him last week because um, his latest project they don't like talking about money, but these sculptures that he has paid for around Australia, sporting sculptures, are worth around $120,000. And last Friday afternoon, outside the Sydney Swans new home near the SCG, near Centennial Park, is this sculpture of Adam Goods. It's larger than life. It's about 1.25% higher than than, Adam's actual... Mm. And it's Adam doing the famous war cry that he did against Carlton back in 2016 from memory, an extraordinary moment in Australian sport, Um, a divisive moment for some, but some very narrow-minded responses from the media and some brilliant responses from the media too. At the time that he did it, people saw it as threatening, heaven knows why. But Basil Sellers, um, I spoke to him about his sculptures and, as you know, he um, sponsored a sporting art prize in Victoria. There were, For 10 years there was a sporting art exhibition that he commandeered in Victoria. He was very disappointed. He did it for 10 years. He was hoping someone would take it over, but they never did. It was a fabulous time for me. I mean, some of the entries were just unbelievable. But he discovered – he real, he's got an amazing – art collection, as you know, and a lot of it resides in Europe. But I think he made the decision, he made the decision that sculptures were something that would withstand, would withstand, um, well, obviously they don't need storage. Obviously the upkeep does not cost what great art costs to upkeep. But there's a wonderful public interaction, isn't there, with a sculpture? Well, he realised that millions of people could see it as opposed to 
thousands. So he, he described it as life-changing. And around the SCG itself, he has paid for, I think there are 12 sculptures, 11 or 12, cricket, Johnny Warren's there, but, you know, there's I think there's two NRL, there's two AFL, sorry, 10, two NRL, two AFL. The AFL one's a Paul Ruse. He, he was an original owner of the Sydney Swans. When they granted that licence famously in um, the 1980, late 1980s to Geoffrey Edelston, they probably should have given it to Basil Sellers. An original owner, still a great benefactor. His, he, the, Sydney Swans' former facility was named after Basil Sellers. Paul Kelly is the other AFL player. So these sculptures around the SCG, he paid for a sculpture at the Lakeside Oval in Melbourne, the former home of South Melbourne, of Bobby Skilton, a wonderful, wonderful sculpture. He, I think there are eight in Adelaide, around the Adelaide Oval. Um, there's cricket, there's AFL. They're, they're just extraordinary. There's athletics. Um, I think Marjorie Jackson is another one. And this Adam Goods one, though, is the first one that is actually outside Sydney's new home, which is... Um, and rare and unusual to have an Indigenous person represented in sculpture, which is fantastic. Yeah, as, as the chairman of the Sydney Swan said, there aren't enough Indigenous sculptures in this country, and it's wonderful that it's there. The Nikki Winmar sculpture, of course, was unveiled um, just before the pandemic over in WA at, at um, the home of the Eagles and the Dockers where they play Optus Stadium. But it's just an extraordinary story about these amazing artworks that he has paid for, this great philanthropist, um, Kathy Wiseman was the artist who actually completed the Adam Good sculpture. She's done a lot of work for him. There's another um, artist he uses in South Australia. And he, I mean, we'll look back one day at the story of Basil Sellers. He's sort of a private man, but I was given his number and I found him so easy to talk to, so interesting to talk mm, to. And he loves art. He's knowledgeable. And not only is he paid for the sculptures, and I think that Adam Good's one, what I, what I saw on the telly, it looks absolutely super. I think it looks wonderful, Caro. Um, I can't wait to see it in real life. But but also imagine the red tape that he and his team have had to navigate to get approvals from various sporting bodies and local council bodies and everybody. You can't just say, oh, I want to put up a sculpture here and people go, oh, okay, that sounds fine. If you want to pay for it, that's okay. I mean, imagine the red tape. Well, Sydney's new home, yeah, it's amazing. And, and this is um, just alongside the, the Horden Pavilion. It's a heritage-listed, um, oh, was it the old Meat and Livestock Centre? Anyway, it, it's a beautiful building and they've kept it intact. And it's not at the main entrance, but it's at the player's entrance around the side in a place called Errol Flynn Boulevard, if you're wandering down there at any time. And so the players will look at it every time they walk in and out. Interestingly, Sydney only have one Indigenous player on their list at the moment, which is unusual, and that's Lance Franklin, who's mm. about to retire, we would imagine, at the end of this year. He also is private and funny about the media, and they didn't have, they didn't want any media at the unveiling last Friday to get Adam there. The only media there was a Northern Territory TV outlet that Adam invited, and um, I knew about it and wrote about it immediately after it was done, and I just thought it was such a great thing that Basil Sellers and Sydney have done. Yeah, well done, Basil. It was a He's big a lovely statement. Man. Lovely man. A big, well, you would have spent time with well, him. Well, I did when he when he life. when he came up with the uh, the idea of the sporting um, art prize. So I did a bit of a story on that. Would have if only that had continued. Oh, exactly. So the Victorian government should have taken oh, that over. Of course they should have. And the, you know the NGV or the NGV Foundation. Somebody should have got behind it.
Yeah, that's disappointing. It's a real shame. Might revisit that one, Corrie. Pleasure to see you. Pleasure to see you. Thank you, of course, to Miss Jane. I think we covered a lot in that episode. And what do we say, Corrie? Don't shoot the messenger. Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger. And if you'd like to support the podcast, tell a friend about the show. Perhaps they haven't discovered it yet. You can send us an email to feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook using the handle at don'tshootpod and sign up for our weekly email. We'll send you the show notes straight to your inbox. And of course, thanks to our show sponsors, Red Energy and Prince Wine Store.